Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code, the management consultancy for what happens next. For more information, you can visit heroncode.com. In this podcast, we will be talking to female leaders of today to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. We always had women leaders, whether in the political arena, whether in trade, whether as rulers. So I was always surrounded by women who were making a change. I did get C-suite coaching for 10 months, Mm -hmm. and that was a life-changing experience at a personal level and at a professional level as well, because when I moved from being a department manager to C-suite, it was very difficult for me to stop being hands-on and doing things on my own, but rather lead my team into doing it. That was a very tricky transition phase. By leading, we need to acknowledge first that we don't know it all. Mm -hmm. Time is changing fast, things are changing fast. We need to always be ready to make the right decision Mm -hmm. at the right time in a fair manner. You know, the human factor is more important than policies and, and rules and regulations. And when I'm in doubt, I used to just refer to my line manager or our CEO is my line manager and just consult. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code. The Heron Code Women in Leadership podcast season three continues. I'm your host, Nimi Mehta. It's been such a pleasure having you and enjoying the season so far. You know what I'm going to say. Every single episode, we have a fantastic, phenomenal woman that joins us and shares their journey and their story. And today is absolutely no different. I'm joined by Muna Margini, who is a Chief HR and Sustainability Officer with over 20 years of experience in humanitarian aid, development management and corporate sustainability. Muna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Excited. (laughs) Amazing. I'm so excited for this conversation because there is so much I want to know about you. And as the listeners know, I do like to take everybody on a journey of getting to where you are today. But a lot of work goes into that and a lot of uh, challenges, pros, cons, amazing moments to tough moments. And so I want to know from the very beginning, where were you born and raised? I was born in Sudan, Mm -hmm. Khartoum mainly, which is the capital. And I was raised there and I've lived all of my life there. I actually recently moved to Dubai after war erupted in Sudan in April. Mm -hmm. I've been employed here since 2015, but Mm -hmm. I opted to uh, be based in Sudan because the majority of the activities of the company where I work is theirs. Mm -hmm. But then I moved here in August to settle. Yeah, You're fresh. You're fresh to Dubai. I'm very fresh, yes. I love that. Paint the picture for us a bit. What was growing up in Sudan like? It was interesting. Mm. Not easy Mm. all along. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I uh, frankly never intended to leave the country as difficult as it got. Mm-hmm. But then it's home. And uh, I was trying to make a difference there. I was trying to make a change. And um, it had its ups and downs. Yeah. But then again, it's home and it's I home. enjoyed living there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so what was Muna like as a kid? I was a loner, I think. Mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of thinking. Of, <laughs> yeah. But then uh, I lived in a happy family, mm-hmm. warm. I'm the youngest of five siblings. Wow. And uh, we've lived initially, it was like a big uh, family home with my uncle and his kids as well and mm-hmm. wife. And then we moved to another house as of five years. Wow. Until uh, April. 
yeah. I lived in the same house. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, I just, I was moving out maybe for studies. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, but then I lived in the, exactly the same house for, from five years old until 46. Wow. I love <laughs> yeah, and, that. But I liked it. Yeah. And of course, it experienced a lot of changes. Siblings mm. getting married and moving out yeah. and then coming back again. And then the grandkids and yeah. all of that. Yeah. And I was living with my parents mm-hmm. until my dad passed away last year. And oh, so uh, my mom moved to Dubai with me mm. uh, when we left the country in April. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, you know, being quite a quiet individual when you were growing up, were you a big dreamer though in your head? Did you have ideas of what you wanted to be when you were older? I did. I did. They're different from where I am now. Yeah. But they're, let's say they're anchored in the same maybe anchored by the same spirit. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what was it? What was it that you wanted to be when you were older? I've, I've mentioned this in a, another podcast. Yeah. I don't want to be repetitive, but it's a, it's a bit silly. But I wanted to be a traffic police woman. I've mentioned it before. Wow. And uh, all my friends laugh <laughs> at it. But then I think it's anchored in the fact that I like to organize things and I like to um, maybe lead. Yes. Make sure everything is in order. Yeah, so, yeah. that but, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So. And one thing you mentioned earlier was that this want to make change yes. for the good, for the better. Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, I think I grew up in a society contrary to what the media reflects that is not necessarily led by women, but we always had women leaders, whether in the political arena, whether in trade, whether as rulers, as was the case at the time of the Nubian, the Nubian kingdom. Mm -hmm. So I was always surrounded by women who were making a change, who were strong characters, who were like leading even their households. Yeah. And then I was in I was exposed to philanthropy at a very young age through my mum and aunt's work. They were both very much involved in charity organizations. And I my mum namely was in charge. She dedicated a lot of her years supporting a home for orphaned girls and a school for the deaf and mute. So I would get involved here and there, like if there were like charity events, if she needed to. Sometimes they would um, help one of the girls in the orphanage get married. So they would be preparing her stuff and and buying her stuff. And I remember that was usually very exciting. Mm. And then when I grew up and matured, I realized that sustainable development and development work would have more of a lasting impact. Mm. So I studied computer sciences. And Mm. then right after I realized it was not the thing for me. Yeah. So I started in parallel studying development Mm -hmm. and uh, I studied in France administration of international aid. Mm -hmm. I also did an MSc in development management with the Open University in the UK and I I started working for uh, NGOs. I worked for Care International, Plan International. I did some training with Oxfam in Oxford Mm -hmm. and then I worked a lot with the European Union where I traveled extensively throughout Sudan. And yeah, this is when it started. Yeah. Yeah. To be studying one thing, but then completely pursue a career for something different. Some people might be completely terrified to change. You put a lot of maybe time, investment, money into studying in university and whatnot. Was it easy to make the change? It wasn't easy, but I think I started at a young age. Mm. So I was in my, like, um, 
I did university between the age of 15 and 19. Mm -hmm. And so at that age, you usually take erratic decisions, yes. and, you know. Yep. <laughs> so it was not easy. But I think I had the motivation. I had the energy. Mm -hmm. I had the, yeah. Um, yeah. So I did both of them at, at that time. And I did also a high diploma in French language at that time. Mm. So it was doable, but challenging. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you made that jump into social and community development. Yeah. What did you find during that time that needed your specific attention in the industry? It was a time, I think, when the majority of... Uh, national, uh, uh, whether national or international organizations were focusing more on humanitarian aid mm. because Sudan was going through a lot of conflicts, civil war, a lot of displacement, a lot mm. of refugees. And um, it was always humanitarian aid, like hit and run. Mm. Um, and then I realized that development was first is what makes a lasting impact. And second is where my heart lies because you get to see the lasting effect mm. in people's lives, in families' lives, and particularly women's lives. Yeah. And that's why I did my MSc in development mm. and opted to work more with development agencies rather than humanitarian. So when you train people, when you help them with build their capacities, give them means for income generation, mm. this is what makes a difference. It's not like the food distribution. Well, that is necessary sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, the vaccination campaigns, the food distribution, it just... It wears you out in a while. Yeah. yeah. Whilst you're taking on these roles and really trying to make a change, you're also trying to develop yourself as a leader. Yeah. And you're learning from everyone around you. Um, did you have any mentors during your early years of your career? I was always, always lucky to have very good line managers. Mm. So they would give me tips. They would coach me. They would mentor me. So there was not a particular one, mm -hmm. but all my line managers were very good. Even the not very good ones, you yeah. get to learn from them. You know, yeah. the difficult ones, with all due respect, incompetent ones, mm -hmm. you just learn how to deal with that particular situation. Yeah. But I did get C-suite coaching for 10 months. Mm -hmm. And that was a life-changing experience at a mm. personal level and at a professional level as well. Because when I moved from being a department manager to a C-suite, it was very difficult for me to stop being hands-on and doing things on my own, but rather lead my team into doing it. That was a very tricky transition phase. Yeah. And it was very stressful as well because mm. I there was a moment in time when I thought I could be doing or filling the gaps of the whole team or doing everything that needed to be done yeah. rather than just guiding and, and leading the way. Mm. So the coaching helped a lot there. Yeah. yeah. People do have different leadership approaches. Yeah. Could you share with us what your leadership approach is? Be open, mm -hmm. definitely. Acknowledge that uh, your team and because I've handled teams in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging that people are different. Acknowledge that people not only different in terms of how they like to do things, but also in terms of their stage of their careers and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And also work as a team. Mm -hmm. I always like to say that I learned more from my team than they learned from me. Mm -hmm. And also how to lead during the time of adversities. That was a big factor. Mm -hmm. Because in Sudan, for the past five years, we've had serious political conflict. Mm -hmm. And this was led by youth that mm -hmm. 
made up a big part of our uh, manpower. So leading during those times and catering for the needs of those youth that wanted to make a change in the country, but they also had commitments in a Mm -hmm. private sector was very tricky. Mm -hmm. So remaining open, communicating well, and also consulting with other peers. So we Mm -hmm. used to always have a task force of what do we need to do? Because sometimes there would be demonstrations planned for several days in a row Mm. during working hours. In terms of labor law, in terms of not only labor law, but in terms of what the country needs, should we allow these youth and even us to get involved or keep on the side? It was always a very tricky conversation, but I think we made the right decisions all along. Mm. So leading is not only leading your team, but leading the work through difficult times, the time of COVID, for example. It was also very tricky times. And uh, being a part of a a group that had industry as a big part of its operations, working from home was not always possible. So organizing that, making sure that neither the company's harm nor the employees are put at risk was also very tricky. Mm. But so by leading, we need to... Acknowledge first that we don't know it all. Mm -hmm. Time is changing fast. Things are changing fast. We need to always be ready to make the right decision Mm -hmm. at the right time in a fair manner as well. Yeah, Yeah. it's tricky, isn't it? When we do talk about these tough times that the whole world is going through, that particular societies and communities are going through, there's a line between being a leader Mm. and then feeling personal empathy towards certain team members of whatever issues and challenges they're coming across. How do you draw the line and how do you get out of personal empathy mode and into leader mode and vice versa? I rely on empathy more. Mm. And I like to just, you know, the human factor is more important than policies and, and rules and regulations. And when I'm in doubt, I used to just refer to my line manager or our CEO is my line manager and Mm. just consult or my colleagues. And luckily, when I joined Hajar Group, it was always a people-centered organization. Mm. So if it's for the benefit of our people, we would go for it, even if it's not governed by our policies and regulations. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, I feel like I've previously worked for companies that don't align with the same values that I have. And when you're trying to grow up the ladder and you're trying to get there and you're trying to grow as an individual professionally, you kind of oversee that. I feel like that's less of a priority. Only now that I'm further on in my career, am I more selective about the things and the people that I work with? Did you ever feel that along your journey or were you quite lucky with the people and the teams and the organizations that you came across and work with specifically? Or do you feel like that should be compromised at all in in aligning values? I think I experienced that when I was younger with Mm. a few of the international NGOs I was working with, particularly working in your home country and then seeing decisions made about it by, with all due respect, but foreigners. And and again, if we take the humanitarian aid, for example, Mm. and you would see Oh, it wasn't really, it did not sit well with me. Yeah. And it did not make that much of an impact. 
And it was sometimes a lot of good said in the media, but not in reality. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, when I grew up, uh, you, and when I matured, you realized that you have more options to just leave mm -hmm. and maybe say something about it, not just leave, and then make a difference, make a change. And that's when I started uh, being more inclined to work with national NGOs, development activities, and, and so forth. But mm -hmm. then luckily with the company I'm with now, the ethos of the company and the values really match mm. what I like. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah, mine. Yeah. And so then as a woman in the industry, yeah. tell me when you first joined the industry, was it against the norm for a woman to be in any leadership roles? Not at all. No, mm. no. It just, I think it happened by default that the majority were men, mm -hmm. particularly that the our biggest employer under the umbrella of Hajar were industrial companies. Mm -hmm. And you don't see the market supplying or women are not inclined to do like vocational training mm. or like electronics or it was by default men. Yeah. But we were trying hard to change that. It was not at all strange, mm. but it was not um, the majority of the employees were men and still are men. Mm. Yeah. So then in any positions that you were in, was it well received? Did you come across any challenges that you particularly felt like they were specifically because you were a woman? They were, yeah, mm. definitely. They mm. were, and I think they were done unconsciously. Like the obstacles I faced were not deliberate obstacles put on my way. It mm. was, you know, how we are, our mindset and how we're conditioned, maybe, be it men or women, yeah. Yeah. we're conditioned to not accept certain things. Yeah. So the obstacles, because I'm also, uh, as mentioned earlier, I have been raised in a country and also a family where women were quite strong and and leaders. Mm -hmm. So I think that prepared my mind to also respond to these obstacles naturally mm -hmm. and find a solution for them, either by being a bit, you know, uh, assertive, mm -hmm. uh, more assertive than necessary or than usually the norm, or by just, you know, yeah, putting my foot down and, mm -hmm. and pushing through. Yeah, because yeah. I've spoken to a lot of women on this podcast and we've all had different ways that we have kind of navigated in order to, I guess, gain respect from the industry at a large, but then also our team members, our peers, our colleagues. You know, there was one particular thing that one guest said and she said that was, I had to give my masculine energy in yeah. order to be received with respect. There was another woman who said, I totally honed in on my feminine energy because I think that's my strength. Okay. <laughs> Where do you lie on that? Is there a specific tone that you feel like you have to exude in a professional setting? Yes. And I think that I learned that earlier on. Mm. The moment I graduated, I worked as a teaching assistant in a university and I was very small in size. Mm -hmm. In terms of weight, height, everything. Yeah. So when I used to stand in front of a class of like, it was a governmental university that mm -hmm. had people from all regions of Sudan. And uh, some of the students were really even older than I am in age because it also, they used to give training courses to like maybe policemen and in using computers, Excel, Word and all of that. So that was the most intimidating experience I ever went through. Mm. And that's when I learned to change my voice tone, change my body language, even the way I used to dress. Wow. And uh, it would give me a bit more presence in the room because sometimes it was even 
very hard for me to, you know, reach the blackboard mm. or like be able to stand in front of the blackboard and make them, you know, stop talking. They were like teenagers, yeah. some of them. And it was very intimidating. But I think that was when I worked on my communication skills, presentation skills, even as mentioned, my body language and my voice tone. And then this carried along with me. But then when I maybe assumed the, a C-suite position, I was very lucky to have very, very respectful colleagues, very mm -hmm. supportive. I would go to them for opinion and for advice. And I never faced any resistance from them in any mm -hmm. way. No. Earlier, you touched on working with the younger generations, you yeah. know, in order to increase awareness of social development and, and the ways. It's interesting because their minds work very differently to ours. Yeah. And uh, we call them Gen Zers or, or whatever you want to call them. But what have you noticed as, as a way of how they are perceiving the space of social development? And where do you think it's going in their hands? I think they're very open and... Uh... On the contrary, they're very much versed to what's happening in the world. And they have a very strong code of conduct and ethos, in particular what they can accept and not accept. Mm. Maybe the terms and the, is different from what we use. They're more into the sustainable development goals, the mm. SDGs, how they can make even have profit-making businesses, but also incorporate the SDGs in yeah. them. So it's a bit different. It's not like charity. It's not philanthropy. Mm. It's uh, different. And um, they're very, I don't want to say hasty, but they're very quick in the decisions they make and mm. how they want to change things. So as you mentioned, it's a completely mm. different generation, a complete different uh, way of thinking and doing things mm. yeah and in terms of businesses on the business front of things you know you're seeing a lot more companies become a lot more aware of their contribution to things like social development to sustainability what are they doing towards the planet there was a part where I feel like or there was a time where I feel like people were just doing it to do it yeah you know to kind of tick the box and mm -hmm. to say they're sustainable of just to have the label on it because it became just a, a cool trend, yes. I guess. <laughs> yeah. What space do you think we're in now in terms of companies actually taking this on board and implementing it into their foundations for a longer future, I guess? I think the greenwashing is still happening, mm. but uh, to a lesser extent, because when some companies did it and it came out, they were badly named and shamed. Mm. Companies are realizing that uh, what's in it for them and they're realizing that if they don't keep up, they will be left behind and that it's not rocket science. Yeah. So it, they're more at ease of implementing, uh, like either uh, taking care of the environment, make, being aware of their impact on the society, on people, mm -hmm. on, and also governance. Like internal governance helps you as a company remain more sustainable. Mm. So I think... There are a lot of people who initially just jumped on the wagon of, yeah. uh, you know, sustainability and just using the terms and, and it's mentioned greenwashing. And then they realize that, no, they cannot do that anymore. And also in terms of at the state level, whichever country it is, governance is becoming more robust there mm. and requirements are becoming more clear mm. in terms of, you know, companies being aware of their carbon footprint, their impact on the environment, all of that. So... They sort of don't have an option but to do it. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, Dubai is a great place for accountability. They, yeah. they really are held accountable, a lot of companies across here. And you recently moved. Tell me about how that move has been for you professionally. Well, I've been holding the same job. Yeah. But the move was 
quite hectic because yeah. I, I was in between a lot of minds and whether coming here or going to Cairo. And I'm taking care of my elderly mother. And also mm -hmm. I have one son. Mm -hmm. So to make the decisions about schooling, where to settle. And it's my very first time to live out of my country. So yeah. it was quite tricky. But then I just, you know, calmed down and took the decision to be here. Because I think here there are a lot of opportunities. I can, um, I can continue with my job. I can continue learning. I can continue studying if I want to. And yeah. yeah. Is that something you'd be interested in then? Further learning? I am actually currently doing a few things here and there, yeah. How do you have time for it? <laughs> um, I, I do manage to find the time. I sometimes, you know, just realize that I had just shot myself in the foot by enrolling in something, but then yeah. I end up doing it, yeah. And I mean, I, I read here you, I mean, not just professionally try to do what you can for community and society, but even in your free time, you're an active volunteer. You like to contribute. What is it that you do outside of your professional role? Well, back home in Sudan, and I like to help local NGOs a lot, either with, um, you know, maybe sometimes you would find a, a local NGO that's doing a great job, but mm -hmm. they struggle with maybe writing the reports, with approaching donors. And because it could be like maybe a group of women who were refugees and or who were displaced and, and created a small NGO and mm. they're trying to make a difference, but they don't have all the skills and capacity to do it. Mm. So sometimes I would contribute in different ways, either by giving advice, supporting them with documents, so in-kind financial contribution, whatever, whatever is needed at the time, and if I manage to do it. And currently I'm just involved with a few NGOs still. Nice. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we've spoken about where we think the youth and the next generation are going to take the industry and the space. What are your hopes for the future, for the direction in which the world is going in, but also particularly in your profession? Oh, that's a difficult question. It's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> is what uh, is going on in the world currently. Yeah. Well, if we start off by Sudan, mm. I... Um, I was very hopeful until recently that things will be very, will just move to the better and change to the better. Mm -hmm. But the recent war has uh, put me down a bit. Mm. So I pray that things will uh, change. But I'm a big believer in youth in general. Mm. I sometimes envy them and wish that I was, you know, with generations. Yeah. I was a Generation Z myself. Mm. So I believe that they will make a huge difference. As mentioned earlier, they don't accept, they don't have the tolerance that my generation had mm -hmm. when it came to uh, seeing uh, wrong being done. Mm -hmm. um, and they have the ability, they, they have the freedom to voice out their opinion more mm -hmm. and they have the freedom to be different and to demand change and to see change through. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful. I am um, nevertheless optimistic that things will move to the better and the uh, and in Sudan as well and across the world yes well Muna if you are leading the next generation I think we're in very good hands <laughs> so you. I want to thank you so much for your thank time you. thank you for um, being here with us today and hopefully we'll see you very soon thank you thank, thank you. you for having me absolutely great Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code <laughs>